Well, we see in this passage a pretty stark contrast between the first half of chapter 12 and the second half of chapter 12. In the first half, we see Abram, the man of faith, going out from his country into a land that the Lord his God shows him. And we see him building an altar, worshiping God. We see him responding to God's call with faith, with goodness, with righteousness. We see Abram as an exemplary man of faith in the first half. In the second half of this chapter, we see certainly a negative example. It's not all negative. There's some good example to be seen here actually still in Abram. For example, we read in verse 10, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Not to settle there. To sojourn there. Abram was in a difficult situation. There was a famine, a severe famine in the land of Canaan. Abram had left his home, the stability and the comforts of his home for an unknown land that the Lord his God would show him. He's sojourning there in that land until the Lord should grant that he would inherit a portion for himself. But in this land that God has called him to possess, he now finds himself hungry. He finds himself in need. And so his faith is tested. This is a a difficult situation. It would have been easy to turn back, frankly. He'd left home, he'd gone to this new place, and in this new place, a famine arises. It would have been easy to turn back. But what we see is that Abram doesn't go home. And more on that in a moment. But Matthew Henry points out that this is a clear example that it's possible for a man to be in the way of duty and yet meet with great troubles and disappointments. We can certainly relate to Abram where we are trying to follow the call of God on our lives and yet we find ourselves in a situation that is less than ideal. It may cause us to wonder about God's goodness, about God's benevolence, about God's ability to provide for us, to care for us. And it would be easy for us to want to turn back, to go back to the way things were before, to ease ourselves of the pressure of trying to follow God and the inconveniences and difficulties and pressures and strains that trying to follow God puts upon our lives. What we see is that Abram responds to this challenging situation not by going to settle in Egypt, but by going to sojourn in Egypt, suggesting that in his mind's eye, Canaan, the land that God promised him, is still seen as home. Abram is going on a temporary excursion, as it were, to Egypt. Which leads to the next commendable aspect of Abram's action in this passage. He travels southwest instead of northeast. In the geography of the Middle East, or of the Chaldees, is up here. Israel is somewhere here. And then Egypt is somewhere here. 
So when Abram runs into trouble here, he doesn't go back northeast. Abram travels southwest. Again, Matthew Henry says that the land of his nativity lay northeast from Canaan. And therefore, when he must for a time quit Canaan, he chooses to go down to Egypt, which lay southwest, the contrary way, that he might not so much as seem to look back. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 15 and 16 read like this, talking about Abram and others of faith who are examples for us of what a life of faith looks like. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Abram, when he has the chance, when he's pressed, when he's tested, here in Canaan, chooses not to go back northeast to where he come from, but head the exact opposite direction, further from his home, to sojourn in Egypt. We see that, as, as Matthew Henry said, he gives us no grounds for even thinking that Abram might have been wondering or might have been trying to turn back. There's no grounds for that. If we said that he went to sojourn, if the scripture said that he went to sojourn in Ur of the Chaldeans, we might wonder, was he planning to go back? Was he planning to go home permanently? The scripture leaves us in no doubt here and says that he went the opposite way of his home when things got tested. Abram was not, we see in this passage, about to turn back, even if he perhaps had been tempted that way. And so likewise, we must not look to return to where we came from. But we also need to keep our eyes on the heavenly country when things get tough. We also need to keep our eyes on that city that God has prepared for His people instead of going back to the city that we left. Now Calvin says, speaking of this speaking of this journey from Canaan to Egypt, the providence of God, I grant, does not indeed preclude the faithful from caring for themselves. We're not led to expect that, or we're not led to conclude, rather, that Abram's journey from Canaan down to Egypt was sinful in and of itself. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that going there to try to find food was sinful in itself. But Calvin goes on to say, Though the providence of God does not preclude the faithful from caring for themselves, let them do it in such a way that they may not overstep their prescribed bounds. Which leads us to our next major point. Though there is something commendable about Abram's faith here, it is clear that he's left us a bad example in this passage. So let's consider now Abram's bad example. We see at a very basic level that Abram commits and in fact asks his wife to be complicit in the sin of lying. He says to her, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, 
and that my life may be spared for your sake. If we flip over to Genesis 20, we see that Abraham actually does the exact same thing again later on in his life. He tells the same kind of lie. But we find that in Genesis 20 and verse 12, Abram justifies his lie and says, Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So he's, he's telling himself, it's not, not really a lie, it's just maybe a little mistruth. It's just a little, it's just a little small we don't have to worry about that. Or as R.C. Sproul would say, it's a peccadillo. But the reality is that this half-truth or this partial truth or this distorted truth is certainly intended to deceive in this passage. Abram is not trying to give the Egyptians clarity about what the situation is. Abram is trying to obfuscate the reality of the situation. And so at the very least we see that Abram is committing the sin of lying here in this passage. But underneath this lie is a far more despicable sin, a far more inexcusable sin. In telling this lie, Abram is... proves that he is willing to share his wife sexually with other men rather than be killed. This is deplorable. There's just no, there's just no way around this. If you go over and read Calvin's commentary, he's actually like very, very favorable towards Abram. He's, Calvin says, yeah, he did sin, but I mean, he was... He knew that the Lord had promised that all the nations would be blessed through him. And if he died, then Yahweh's promise could not be fulfilled. And so Abram is kind of acting in faith as he tries to preserve his life. This is nonsense. And that's that's a bad piece of exegesis by Calvin. The reality is that, and it's clear from the way things played out, Abram was willing to let his wife go become the wife of somebody else rather than put his own life in danger. That's just deplorable any way you look at it. That's very sinful any way that you look at it. That's very evil. If anyone, if anyone in our church did something similar like this, we would all, I think, view it as a very wicked act. We would be like, well, Abram did the same thing. And I mean, he was a great man of faith. We would look and be like, wow, that is, that is a really, really evil thing. That's very, very low. That's, that's disgusting. It's cowardly. It's shameful. Frankly, it's abusive. Because Abram is using his authority and his influence over Sarai in a way that is serving himself and endangering her. Listen even to his words here. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, 
but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is selfish. Very selfish. Very self-serving. This is, this is a really evil way of a man exercising leadership in the home. This is not the kind of way that a Christian man is supposed to exercise leadership over his wife. Putting her in harm's way in order to make his life easier, more comfortable. He thinks that this is a safer course of action? Safer for whom? Not his wife. Calvin wants to say that there's no way that Pharaoh slept with her because God would never let that happen to the matriarch of the family of God. But I think, I think that that's an inconclusive argument. The King James Version translates verse 19 saying something like this. Why did you say that she is my sister in order that I might take her for my wife? I might have taken her for my wife. But that might have is supplied. It's not there in the Hebrew text. Which is why the ESV translates it like this. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? The Hebrew says that he took her for his wife. We read earlier in the passage that when the princes of Pharaoh, verse 15, saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. It seems that the Pharaoh was unlike, or pardon me, was like other kings, presidents, people of power throughout history who have used their power to serve themselves, including sexually. That they've used their positions of influence to gather to themselves beautiful women who will sleep with them. It seems that the princes of Pharaoh knew that this is how Pharaoh operates. Pharaoh wants beautiful women. And so they see one. They report to him, here's a beautiful woman. And she's taken into his household. She's taken to be his wife. This is what the text tells us. We know later in Genesis chapter 20, when this situation happens again, that God intervenes directly and prevents the man in that case from sleeping with Sarah. But in this case, we're not told that that happened. In fact, I think the silence of the text here might be telling. That she was taken in to Pharaoh's house and made his wife along with everything that that entails. So who was this plan safer for? Abram, maybe. Not Sarai. We don't hear about Sarai's involvement in this other than it's, it's implicit in this passage that she went along with Abram's plan. But we don't know whether she went along sort of as an equally guilty party or under compulsion, under pressure. I don't think the scripture paints for us a picture of her being an unfaithful and adulterous wife who is willing and eager 
to sleep with another man. The scripture doesn't paint her like that. It paints her as a good, godly woman. So when she was taken into Pharaoh's house and made his wife, how did she feel about that? Think about it. She, that probably made her sick to her stomach. It was an awful situation where she had been abused by the leadership of her husband, put into a situation where now she's subject to the sexual advances of a man whom she is not married to, or, or perhaps a second husband, as it were, because Pharaoh takes her not knowing that she's already Abram's. Right? But this is an awful situation. I'm just trying to highlight. This is just a really awful situation. We just, there's, there's no way around this. So, Abram certainly leaves us a bad example in this passage. It's clear through Abram's actions that there was a heart level dynamic that was which was sinful leading to these sinful actions. Matthew Henry says, without doubt the peril of sin is the greatest peril we can be in. Without doubt the peril of sin is the greatest peril we can be in. In this situation, Abram didn't believe that. Didn't act on that. He felt like it would be less perilous to sin than it would be to go into Egypt and tell the truth and be a good, godly man to protect his wife, to show godly leadership, etc., etc. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Abram here in this passage is, is doing the exact opposite. He's fearing those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. And he is not fearing him whom, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. What has happened in this passage is that men and the peril that men can cause have loomed large in Abram's eyes. And God, His holiness, His wrath, His purity, His righteousness have become small things, petty things in Abram's eyes. This is what's going on underneath certainly even as we even as I mentioned a few moments ago we can be in the way of duty and yet meet with great troubles and disappointments it's possible hypothetically speaking that if Abram had said she is my wife that they would have killed him hypothetically speaking things like that happen to Christians bad things happen But what God instructs us to do in the Scripture is to entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. Not to sin against His commands for the sake of self-preservation. 
God instructs us to fear Him and to live Koram Deo, that is before the face of God, rather than capitulate to the fear of man that we might feel rising up in our hearts. Listen to this selection, this compilation of verses from 1 Peter 2 and 3. You can go read those chapters on your own, but I just selected a few portions of that, which I think give us a sense, the flavor of those chapters. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps, entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Abram's example is partially good, in the sense that he didn't try to turn back when the famine came upon the land. But his example is very much, in this section, evil. Insofar as he acts as a man of faith, not turning back, but clinging to God's promise that he shall inherit the land of Canaan, considering himself then a sojourner and not a settler in Egypt, we should emulate him. We should try to be like that man of faith, clinging to God's promise, looking to a heavenly country, realizing that this world is not our home, that we left, we left our claim on this life when we came to Christ. We left our claim for our reward here and now. We deferred that. We, we did, chose to defer our reward to, a, to receiving a heavenly country, a heavenly city, rather than whatever we might get out of this life here and now. When things get tough, we ought not to try to go back and become again consider ourselves again settlers here in this world and seek to find our reward in the here and in the now, but we need to remember that our reward is as yet future. We need to keep our eyes on that heavenly city and refuse to go back, just as Abram refused to go back. And yet, we ought not to follow Abram's example here where he feared man. He was so afraid of what man could do to him that he was willing to sin against God. We ought not to be like Abram in that respect. We need to develop conviction that even if we should suffer for doing good, if that should be the will of God, so be it. We will be like Christ who left us an example that we should follow in His steps. We should entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. Let the chips fall where they may. We will follow Christ. These are some things that we can draw from this passage. But the Christian life is more than imitating the good example of Old Testament saints. And it's more than avoiding the bad example of Old Testament saints. Our hope is not that we might become like Abram. Nor is it our hope that Abram will rescue us from peril. Our hope is not that Abram is the seed of the woman who shall crush the serpent's head. And so ultimately we have to read this passage within the context of that unfolding narrative about about the coming of that seed of the woman and understand where this passage fits into that broader story. 
Thank God Abram is not that seed of the woman who is to crush the serpent's head. Otherwise we would find that the serpent has won. He has wrapped himself around that seed and has begun to swallow him. Rather than our hope being in Abram, our hope is in a man who treats his bride better than Abram did. There's a clear contrast between Abram and Christ Jesus. Sarai is only ever in the Scripture mentioned. In, in the, as the New Testament reflects back on the narrative, she is only mentioned as a good wife. So she's a good wife. Not sinless, obviously. In fact, she laughed when the angel said that she would have a baby because she was past childbearing age. We'll come to that. Not sinless, but the Scripture's reflection upon her legacy in the New Testament is that she was a good wife, but she was treated badly by her husband. By contrast, the Scripture speaks about another wife, Another bride. The church. The bride of Christ. Comprised of that whole number of the elect. Every man, woman, boy and girl chosen from before the foundation of the earth. To belong to Christ Jesus. To be redeemed by Him. From the time of Adam until the time of Christ's return. And this bride, the scriptural portrait, the portrait that the scripture paints of this bride, is that she is unfaithful. The scripture uses stronger language. She is a whore. We read a little bit about that in the morning service. Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3. You can go and read about God's whoring people. The book of Hosea uses the same language. Hosea is instructed to take a prostitute as his wife. And then she leaves him after he has married her to return to prostitution and God says, go take her again. And the scripture teaches us that this is a picture of Christ in the church. That this is a picture of Christ and His bride. Sarai is a good wife who was treated badly by her husband. The church is a bad wife who was treated well, treated good by her husband. The point of comparison is this. Who is the better husband? A man who treats a good wife badly or a man who treats a bad wife well? Jesus is an incomparably better husband. Jesus treats his bride much better than Abram treated his. The Song of Solomon is comprised of poetry describing the relationship between a husband and wife. I think at a basic level, it is about 
the relations between a husband and a wife. But we read elsewhere in Scripture that the relations between a husband and a wife are intended to picture Christ and the church. And so it is even with the Song of Solomon. It, tells the, it paints a picture of a good marriage. It paints a picture of an intimate marriage. And so the, the bridegroom's words to his bride in the Song of Solomon are literally words like a good husband should speak to his wife in this world. But they're also analogous to the way that Christ, the supreme, the ultimate, the archetypal bridegroom, feels about His bride, loves His bride. She's dear to Him. She is sweet to Him. Though she herself has been unlovely, though she herself has been unfaithful, though she has played the whore, Christ Jesus speaks with the words of the bridegroom in the Song of Solomon to His bride. He is like Hosea who goes again and takes back to himself the unfaithful bride. Ephesians chapter 5, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, tells us how Christ Jesus has treated His bride. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Think about this. As you read the story of Abram, you wish it was otherwise. As you read the story of Abram, you want to read about a good man and you're disappointed to read about a bad man. As you read Genesis chapter 12, there's a longing that you feel in your heart for a righteous and a good bridegroom. You read this story and you feel disappointed that this man who is appointed to be a blessing, to be a father of many nations, that this man stumbles so severely in this passage. That longing for Abram to be better than he is creates the expectation for us, the hope for us, that as we continue to read Genesis 13, Genesis 14, Genesis 15, and so on and so forth, as we continue to turn the pages of the Bible, that one day there will be a good bridegroom. That one day we're going to read a story in the Bible that doesn't end with the hero becoming an anti-hero. And what we find is that when we come to the story of Jesus, when we read about His entrance into this world, and our expectation is raised, our hope is renewed, that maybe here will be one who is truly a hero, who does not stumble and fall, but who is everything He ought to be. 
we find that our expectations are not disappointed. And that He is a better Adam. That He's a better Noah. That He's a better Abram. We find that Christ Jesus comes and does what all of these men failed to do. When we read Genesis chapter 12, we might think, I would never do what Abram did. We might think, I'm not like Abram. Yes, you are. In fact, in many ways, you're worse than Abram. Because in the story, in the story of that ultimate marriage, you're not a bridegroom who has treated a good wife badly. You are the bad wife. In that story of Christ in the church, you've been unfaithful to that heavenly bridegroom. And so as you read Genesis 12, it's not, a, it's not as you try to think about where you would be in that story and what you would do. What you should understand is you're actually like Abram and that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that together with Abram, you and all other sinners whom God has purposed to redeem make an unfaithful bride. But Christ has come to treat His bride better than Abram treats his in this passage. Jesus came and lived for us, fulfilling all righteousness for us. Jesus came to do what Abram should have done, what you should have done, what I should have done. Because our hope is not that we will just be better and do better in the future. Because our hope is not that we will somehow be able to copy good examples and avoid being bad examples. Jesus came to do something much better than that. He came to fulfill all righteousness for us. And He bore in Himself the penalty that we deserve for our sin on the cross. And He was doing that for us who are together as believers, His bride. Jesus treated His bride well, though we were a bad wife. He's infinitely superior to Abram. And so we can learn from Abram's positive example and we can learn from Abram's negative example. But our hope ought not to be ultimately in Abram. But our hope ultimately ought to be in a better bridegroom who treats his wife better than Abram.